0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, December the 12th, 2013. This is episode 1265 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a good one for you today. I got Christine Faith on backyard farming and urban, uh, farming. Uh, Christine is someone I met up in uh, Colorado. I didn't get to see her speak, but a lot of you guys that were there to see me also went and saw her and said, you got to get this woman on. She is fantastic. When you hear today's interview, you'll know why so many of your fellow listeners uh, brought her to my attention. I'm glad she's on the air with us today. Before I get to Christine, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day, number one today, KnifeKits.com. Uh, you know, if you want to learn how to make knife kits, a knife kits, If you want to know how to make knives, and you've been kicking around the idea of making your own knives, get on over to KnifeKits.com. They are awesome. They have some of the coolest stuff you'll ever see, and easy to learn, too. Kits, kind of like a snap together model. You pick up some handle material and maybe some uh, pins and things like that, and you follow a DVD or a book, and you take a kit and transform it into a custom-made one-of-a-kind knife. Easy to do and very, very affordable. But let's say you've kind of graduated past that. You're a master bladesmith now. You're looking for exotic handle material like camel bone or buffalo horn or mammoth tusk. Or if you're looking for exotic steels like Damascus, you'll find all of that more. Tremendous selection of Kydex, you name it. They've got it. KnifeKits.com. Remember, they do provide a discount for members of the support brigade. So check the benefits section of the MSB before... Uh, you, uh, you buy from knife kits if you're an MSB member because you should get your discounts, part of what you're paying for. Next up, Backwoods Home Magazine. When I was a young guy, I mean really, I'm like 21, 22, just out of the army and uh, came to uh, Louisville, Texas. I was kind of broken. I got here and my car broke down. I mean literally broke down like about 15 miles from my buddy who I was coming to visit. And until I could kind of get back on my feet, find a job, get my car fixed and all that, um, you know, I made do with what I had. And I walked to this mall that was like a mile away from his house on a, a routine basis. And I discovered a magazine on their their shelves called Backwoods Home Magazine. And it was really something I was looking for because I was now living in the city. I had spent a couple of years overseas. I was so far away from my roots as a country boy. Backwoods Home was like a little machine, a little time machine let me travel back to those days and taught me a lot of what I teach you guys now on the air. Over the years, I came back to my roots and Backwoods Home has been with me the entire time. To be able to work with them today... As sponsors is really something special because of the story I just told you. If you want the best advice you can get in self-reliance and self uh, self-sufficient living and a libertarian flair to go along with it, check them out today magazine dot com. And remember, they also have a special deal for first time subscribers through the Members Support Brigade. Uh, on the Members Support Brigade, remember I am running a sale. Uh, 30 bucks for your first year if you join uh, right now all through Sunday evening. Discount code is DEC. 2013, December 2013. Uh, there's full details on the site about about the sale. You can pay by checker or money order. You can buy a, a membership for somebody else. Yes, you can do all of those things. Um, but uh, basically, it's just a great deal on a product that's already a great deal. I do have a service discount available for military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty and prior service and first responders like uh, firefighters and uh, paramedics and EMTs. I will tell you though, right now, if you're going to join for a year, this is a better deal join with that first responders and uh, if you're going to go on auto renew counseling or auto renew and when you come up for renewal then get the service discount because this is better if you're going to join for like six months three months monthly uh, the big thing with the service discount is you can use it for any membership term so you still might want to email me about that alright with uh, with all that wrapped up it's my good pleasure at this time oh wait a minute we forgot our history segment the year 1265 I cannot forget to do 1265 there's a lot going on uh number 1 this guy Simon de Montfort he was the uh 6th earl of Leicester he ran the second barons war he kicked kicked uh prince edward's ass and uh took over england basically he was kind of like the king of england for a while but more like a president had parliament and all that stuff yeah well uh Prince Edward escapes captivity, rallies his forces, kills Simon de Montfort, cuts his body into several large pieces, ab- abolishes the agreements that he made, and takes over, as, you know, basically regains the the, the the sovereignty of the throne of England, uh, later of which he will, of course, sit on uh, eventually as King Edward I. So he just wipes out Simon de Montfort. So Simon de Montfort... Had his best year and his worst year ever, in the words of Alex, who's been helping me out with this. Next up, um, Kubla Khan's not actually having a good time right now. Uh, gets his ass handed to him uh, in one particular situation, kicked across Yellow River. Um, he also uh, is successful, though, and it, it goes out on a different campaign. Pish Picks another place where he can do a little bit better, and uh, he goes into the Song Dynasty. Actually, the Song Dynasty is the guys that kicked him across the uh, Yangtze River, not the Yellow River, I'm sorry. Uh, but uh, Kublai then decides, well, I'm going to do something about this, and uh, heads down to Chuan Province and gains a uh, victory there. And a war booty of 146 captured Song Dynasty naval ships. And then he sends uh, a delegation over to Japan that basically tells the emperor that uh, he better pay tribute or the Khans might come to Japan, and the emperor pretty much goes, eh, nice of you guys to come by, and they have a pleasant trip, but uh, nothing really happens out of that, and Japan is really never put under the throng of the Mongols. Um, the Mongol Empire at this point is in a very slow crumble, guys, The the great... Uh, Mongol Empire and the Great Kublai Khan himself is is at the height uh, and already past the bell curve of the height and into decline. They will never advance again to the la- the levels that they had in the past. Um, as I said before, someone told Kubla, you know, you can uh, you can conquer an empire on horseback, but you, you can't run it on horseback. Uh, I was a brave guy who ever said that. Anyway, one more thing happened. This was the birth of an American icon that's not an American icon at all, Budweiser. Budweiser beer. And Alex helped me out with some information that even I, guy that knows more about beer than you want to know, did not know. Uh, Budweiser, Bohemia, is established in what today is the Czech Republic. Knew that. King Akkar II grants the city the right to brew beer. Didn't know that, but that's how it started. The king said you can brew beer. Home brewing will begin with the production brewery opening in 1895. So the Budweiser that we're talking about was a a, a varied thing that everybody was brewing in their home in this town. And eventually the town became so known for, for beer that in 1895 they opened a commercial brewery making the beer that their region had become known for. But the beginning of that beer was all the way back in 1265. Then, as I did know, in 1876, Adolphus Busch will visit the reason and will create a bohemian-style beer called Budweiser, meaning from Budweiser. Trademark disputes continue to this day. And here's one where they play out. The swill that comes in a can of Budweiser that's beechwood wood-aged, folks, which means absolutely nothing. Beechwood aged might, might as well be called plastic-aged. These beechwoods wood because it imparts no flavor whatsoever to the beer, but marketing people will sell you anything that you will buy. But that swill tastes nothing like, obviously, the 1265 version, but nothing like the Bohemian-style beer that they would call Budweiser today over in Europe. But you can buy it. It just isn't called Budweiser because of trademark disputes. I am kicking around a contest, but no, I'll just tell you. If you want to try the original Budweiser, this not swill, You can go get a bottle, it'll be green, it'll come from the Czech Republic, and it will be called Pilsner Urquell. That is as close to original Budweiser as you can get in this country. I will say this though, beer in a green bottle is not a good thing. It's not an import taste when you taste skunk in your beer. That's not how it is supposed to taste, that's not how they drink it over there. Green bottles suck. They do not block UV light, and it has an adverse effect on the alpha acid in hops. You're getting a chemistry lesson today, whether you want it or not. That makes the skunk taste, and this can happen in very little time whatsoever, so if you're going to buy personal quell, you want it inside of a box and you want to never let it be exposed to open light for any great length of time. Get it immediately into your refrigerator. Keep it in the box in your refrigerator and pull the bottles out of the box. One at a time as you consume them, And you will find that the original Budweiser is a great beer. Again, unlike the swill that they serve you out of red, and white, and blue cans today. Though, However, I have to say... I do like the Clydesdales and the Budweiser commercials. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of our show today. And it is with again, Christine Faith, urban farmer extraordinaire. Christine, welcome to the Survival Podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm
0: glad to be here. Hey, we've got you on to talk about urban farming. And I, I, I actually came in to be in touch with you at the Self Reliance Expo in Colorado. And, uh, a couple of my listeners said, hey, this, this gal did a really good presentation. I unfortunately didn't get to, to listen to it. Um, but that got you coming on the show talking about this topic, but I find that almost everybody I bring on this show never grew up with the intention of doing what they were doing now. Like. <laughs> It, it almost always was this crooked path. Well, you know, I was out selling vacuum cleaners to hobos, and that, you know. So, could you tell us maybe a little bit about your background and how you ended up, you know, in the urban farming world?
1: Yeah, that's that's a hilarious um, intro. That's very funny because that's exactly how it happened. Um, my husband and I got into urban farming sort of out of an argument. Um, he, we, we joke that we have a mixed marriage in that, you know, he's kind of a conspiracy theorist and I'm sort of like a peace, love, and granola hippie. And we were sort of, um, frustrated with the food system from different points. We were coming at it from very different directions and neither one of us liked what we were seeing at all. Um, and so we went through sort of the, you know, the, the progression of, you know, how sustainable is really sustainable and, and what does sustainability look like? for us. And we decided to sort of employ this, um, I guess, shelter in place model. We said, you know what, the food system's screwy. Um, there's, It's kind of garbage coming out of it, and it's not really stable in and of itself. And so we were going to kind of take the bull by the horns and, and take more responsibility for our food production where we currently were at. You know, a lot of folks um, talk about, well, you know, when I move out in the country and I get land, that's when I'm going to start dealing with food security. We decided to do it where we were right now, which is in an urban environment,
0: well, that makes perfect sense to me It's you know I've eventually got myself onto some acreage, but when I started uh kind of rediscovering my roots, we lived on a little third of an acre place in the in the suburbs, and we did it right there and in some ways, a few things actually seemed easier
1: yeah
0: um and and so it's a great way to do things so you know that kind of sort of answers my next question, which was you know. Why did you get started in backyard farming? So was there more to it than just that?
1: Um, there was. That we, you know, we had sort of delusions of grandeur about how much money we were going to save and, um, ah. you know, those types of things. <laughs> and um, the initial build on, on an urban farm, the, the costs are fairly expensive, um, so that did not pan out immediately the way that we had intended over the long haul. And as food prices have continued to rise, that has become, um, more true. So it's, it was not true initially, but over the long run, it definitely becomes, um, more true. And then as we started to do this, um, there was such interest from, you know our neighbors to you know people sort of far and wide the the farm gets about a hundred visitors a year folks that want to kind of come see what we're doing so as we were building and we started to see all the interest um, we sort of we built in an educational component to it, and we made sure that everything that we did is one hundred percent legal, which is really important to us, not because we're you know. Big on everything being legal, necessarily, you know, for its own sake, but so that people could come and feel confident that they could duplicate this in their own backyard.
0: Sure, sure. And yeah. you're not at risk of having somebody show up and you know pull all your yep. vegetables out, exactly. which is ridiculous yep. as that sounds, and it could never happen in America. It <laughs> it, it has. I mean, yeah. I think if you would have told somebody in 1985, there will come a day. Where people have front yard gardens ripped out by city officials, yeah. they would have called you a flat out conspiracy nut. Yep. And we've seen that. So I think, especially if you're going to be visible with what you're doing, that it's important to 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 you know tick those legal boxes.
1: Yep. Exactly. Exactly.
0: So. You know, you talk about it's expensive and it, it can be, yeah. definitely. So, how does someone design an urban or a suburban space to be used for agriculture? You know, getting beyond putting a couple raised beds.
1: Yeah, and that's, that is, um, a real big question. Um, and, and I, I do want to sort of address the cost piece because there are ways to, to keep costs down. But before we get there, just sort of the, the overall design piece when you're, When you're building a backyard farm, your space is considerably more constrained than if you're in, or constrained than if you're in a rural area, which means that you have to be very thoughtful about where things are placed. You also have the advantage of sort of an infinite number of microclimates, and I know you're familiar with permaculture, so that, that term should, should ring for you. But with a small space, with an urban or suburban space, you have your front yard and your backyard, and you have, you know, all four cardinal directions. Any place you've got a structure or a fence or a tree or a hedgerow, you're creating microclimates, and those have got to be leveraged to the farm's benefit. Because you don't have the abundance of space, you have to um, manage particular things in very specific places to get the most bang for your buck. Um, and let me give you an example of that. And this, is, this one's a little counterintuitive. So I have about 40 or so actually about 45 or so um, fruit producers in my backyard, trees and vines and shrubs and all types of stuff, ground covers. And I have some that are very sensitive and they are referred to as our wussy guild because they're just little wimpy plants and we have to kind of, you know, keep an eye on them. So we picked the most beneficial microclimate for those fruit producers. And this is the counterintuitive part. We put them in the coldest, deepest shade, winter pocket of the yard we could find and what that does is it keeps those plants dormant long after the other ones have broke bud which means if we get a late frost those guys are still asleep and they're still protected so we leveraged that little unique pocket the coldest spot we've got for plants that cannot take an early frost and we situated them right there and we actually get them to produce better than if we had them in full sun
0: well that makes perfect sense so when it comes down to the the, the cost uh, or, or to the um, the whole layout, then can you kind of go through? I guess maybe the best way to do it would be: can you describe what your urban you know, farm is like, wh- wh- how much space, uh, you know, what you're growing, like the, the macro view of the totality of the project. Sure.
1: So, um, our backyard, and we, we do restrict cultivation to the backyard. And I know that the front yard gardens, there's a lot of folks that can, that can do that. And they're, they're sort of a positive example for other folks in the community, but not everybody can do it. So we, we kind of keep ours tucked away into the back. So backyard is about 3,000 square feet. We only have about a thousand square feet under cultivation. Um, one of my previous careers was as an urban planner, and I have a great respect for open space. And so I deliberately planned in open space and recreational space into the backyard. So we, we are not wall-to-wall production. So when you're designing, um, start literally start at your back door and make a decision about what things are going on your landscape and how often you will visit those things. So, for instance, um, the beehive, we only visit the beehive, gosh, a half dozen times a year, unless it's summer and we're dropping off nectar form if, if we're dry, if we're in a drought year. Um, then we're out there a little more often. But typically, beehive, we're not in and out so much. Chicken coop, we're in and out of twice a day. So if you start measuring footsteps from your backyard and you say, okay, so I need to get to that chicken pen twice a day, but I only need to get to that beehive, six times a year, it becomes obvious that the beehive gets placed further out. Um, the microclimate piece has to be considered. Um, if I had a good spot for the bees that was closer in, you know, a place that was protected from the wind and had full winter sun, then I would place them there. So there's a little bit of um, trade off there. If you're talking about plant systems, the very first thing you have to do is you have to map your water. The, the idea is um, – you plant your water first and then you plant your plants. So where's the water coming off of your roof where are your downspouts? Where can you direct that water? And where that water stops, where it terminates, consider sinking some trees and some shrubs down in there because they're going to get the most water um, in that particular location. Um, the other piece you need to consider when designing is a bit like a chess game um, is integration. So I have chickens, they're fabulous. And I need those little girls to work my garden beds from time to time. So how can I locate things in the landscape in a way that the, the chickens have suitable housing, they're in a good spot for them, but I can integrate them into other parts of the landscape as I need them. So there's really kind of four pieces there, um, what I call frequency and proximity, which is how close it is and how often you visit, um, the integration piece, the water piece, and the microclimates.
0: Okay, well, it's definitely a, a, a case and text study there for zone analysis yeah. from a standpoint of the permaculture world. Um, what would you advise someone to do if their you know their backyard is typical suburban green space, maybe one lollipop tree in the backyard, and and they're wanting to do this? Where where would you say they should first start?
1: Actually, I would start with the tree. Um, <laughs> the tree is is an anchor point, and it's creating a microclimate just by its existence on the landscape. So it's creating some shade, some windbreak, and it's increasing the humidity levels immediately around that tree. Um, even if it's what I call a um, a non-contributing tree, meaning that it's not actually contributing nitrogen to the soil or, or food for the landscape or whatever, it can serve as a nurse tree, as an anchor, and you can build off of it. So if you're trying to establish um, sort of that dense, that food forest mentality, Start chipping away at your lawn and start backing that off and start building around that tree um, because it's already in place. The the other recommendation, and these are sort of in parallel, is to look at the different systems that are possible in your suburban or urban area. So is it bees? Is it meat rabbits? Is it poultry? In some cases, it could be miniature dairy goats, vegetables, you know, all those types of things. And which one really makes your heart sing? Which one really speaks to you? And start with that one. Now, don't start until you have your landscape sort of planned out. Um, that's, a, that's a problem if folks kind of haphazardly get into something and just drop them randomly on a landscape. So consider where all those things should go, but start with the one that really speaks to you.
0: Uh, that makes a lot of sense, definitely. Um, what was your biggest mistake that you ever made with your backyard farm?
1: Um, so my biggest mistake, sort of biggest regret, uh, was we got into meat rabbits. And I was raised on a small farm, kind of a gentleman's farm in Oregon, and we had uh, meat rabbits when I was a kid. My dad handled all the butchering. And I really, I'm an omnivore. I really wanted a clean, um, reliable, humanely raised protein source for the backyard. And so we got into meat rabbits, and push come to shove. I had a heck of a time butchering those rabbits, and it was really tough and so I felt like a failure like emotionally like i I failed like i i have I'm an omnivore, I'm eating meat, and so I need to take responsibility for that and when it came right down to it, I was just lousy at the butchering process. I was a nervous wreck, I mean the rabbit's a nervous wreck um, and so we eventually we got out of them um, now we buy directly from farmers in our area that produce. Uh, our meat for us, we don't buy from the the grocery store per se, um, so that's kind of our compromise. But that was hard. That was a a, a you know a fall flat on your face kind of event.
0: I think that's important for people to hear though, because I think that as we get more and more into self sufficiency, we can overdo it, think that we need to do everything ourselves, mm-hmm. and human beings just don't work that way. Yeah, no person. Does everything for themselves that's why we are a a community creature a community animal, if you will
1: yep yeah I recently heard um self sustainability meaning you know being an island unto yourself, like this idea of being completely self sustainable as a fool's errand, and that sort of resonated with me because I thought my gosh it show me at what point in history that humans lived completely isolated and on their own i mean it just it didn't happen and and it was so this lesson was hard for us, but it it um, it strengthened our tie to the community and to the other producers in our area. So there was an upshot.
0: Well, and I've talked to guys that are kind of like that. They have that attitude. I do everything <laughs> myself. And like, oh, really? How do you get around? I got this big old truck. I can go anywhere I want. You build it for yourself. <laughs> Well, well, no, but I own it outright. It's mine now. Okay, do you refine the oil into mm-hmm. gasoline? Did, exactly. You put it in there. Well, no, and you know, did you make the tires for yourself? <laughs> no. Oh, okay. And 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 when you go somewhere, do you use a thing called a map? Did you? Are you a cartographer? And you know, it's the same thing with the. You know, I, I try to buy local and from America, but you just can't buy everything local or from America. Yeah. And when people get on you about, well, that's from China. Where was your doorknob made, yeah. dude? You know?
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So we so do definitely. as much as we can, you know.
0: So we you know, we talked about kind of the, the the most regretted moment. What was maybe your proudest moment?
1: Ooh. Um we we've had a number of successes. I guess we I won't know. I don't know if this is my absolute proudest, but I will say that, you know, we've been bragging all year that um we pulled 70 pounds of honey from our single hive this year, which is just a phenomenal amount um our our hives swarmed not this season but the season before and when that happened we we lost the um the bread the purebred bees that we had bought and now we have native bees their temperament changed and they were just snotty and nasty and they chase you out of the yard but they are amazing producers Um, so we sort of had this this change of opinion about the hive we were going to requeen we're not going to now because they're they're such good producers but we're just tickled pink that we actually pulled 70 pounds of honey out of that hive.
0: You know, I'll tell you something with the native bees and things like that. I just found something that I consider to be a treasure for 10 bucks. I got drug, like any husband that goes to one of these places did, <laughs> one of those antique malls. And we're looking through there, and I find this box, and it's all newspaper clippings and things like that, from about 1903 up to about nineteen thirty. And it was all on bees. Wow. I'd 90% was on bees. And, you know, there was no Internet in 1900. So somebody that was in the bees would go through, like, every newspaper, every magazine, like that, and they would do – and I you know, kind of forgot that people did this back in the day, so to speak, but they would take clippings, and they would save, and that was, like, their library, their resource. Wow. You know, you would probably have things like if you had a, a friend in another city with a different newspaper, hey, if you see anything like that, send it to me, that type of thing going on. And there was even some, like, old farm literature books in there, that you couldn't read anymore because he had basically pasted the clippings and used them because they were cardboard and used them to make like a book to keep it all organized. Wow. And I got to tell you, half of what those guys were concerned about was figuring out how do I get bees and where do I catch them and how do I catch them. Yeah. They didn't order bees from the Sears catalog or whatever. They, They caught their bees. They all did it.
1: That's wonderful. Have you considered maybe scanning that in and, and posting that for folks? I mean, what a resource.
0: Yeah, we're looking at trying to figure out how we would do that because I think it would be an incredible resource, we really need to go through it all, but it's uh, yeah, I got it for ten bucks.
1: Oh man, wow. Now,
0: it's this big, heavy box of this stuff there's got to be there's got to be a hundred different articles, and it's all beekeeping stuff from like 1930s and back and uh, yeah, but what I've noticed so far is tons of stuff on capturing bees. Tons of concerns about the effects of, of uh, modern agriculture on bees. Really? All the stuff that we think of as new, you know, there's no mentioning of colony collapse disorder, but right. and no mention of uh, African bees, but, at least I haven't found yet anyway, but the same types of things people are concerned about largely were still concerns back then.
1: Interesting. That's a real resource. Holy smokes.
0: Yeah. So as you were doing this, and you you're, you're, you took this idea i 'm going to take this three thousand square foot backyard and start producing food on it. Was there ever a time that you almost just like threw everything down and said, the hell with this, I quit
1: <laughs> uh, Yeah, there' was a few um, especially with our aquaponics system. Um, we 've really you know been through the the ringer with that system we 've had um, two or three three complete fish losses. Um, in that system, we uh, we ended up with chloramine in our water, which is a a long story. But um, that we ended up having to to dump the system and start completely over, and that was devastating. It was the to us the aquaponic system was the crown jewel of the uh, the backyard farming. It was sort of the the ultimate in efficiency and and compact growing space and closed loop ecosystem and all that stuff. And to fail at it so badly, we there yeah, we definitely when, when we lost the the twenty tilapia, we had these gorgeous tilapia that we bought out of Denver and when we lost that tank full of tilapia, um, I think my husband wanted to sit down on the ground and cry. I mean it was that was devastating. We almost did just sort of walk away from it. Um we ironically the day that happened um, about maybe fifteen of our closest friends um, were scheduled to come over and help us put in all of our fruit trees and shrubs um, it was kind of a celebration kind of a party and I, I think that that event that having those people that believed in us and believed in what we were doing and wanted to be a part of it wanted to help to have them show up the morning that we found that tank full of dead fish I think is probably what saved us.
0: <laughs> and I, I, you know, I think that I, I mean I don't know if you guys have really rebuilt the aquaponics thing at this point heavily or not, but I think it's one of the more challenging aspects of, of food production. I think it sounds good, yep. uh, but I think the smaller the system is, the more difficult it is to maintain stability.
1: Yeah, that's very true. And and we have rebuilt it, and it's it's cranking right now. I mean, we had the the same cold snap that, that you guys were experiencing and I'm still out there every night har- harvesting Swiss chard and hot soy and, and cabbage. I mean, it's going strong. So we did put it back together, but I there's really three backyard farming skills I consider advanced skills. Aquaponics is one meat rabbits is one um because of the the butchering aspect and then uh miniature dairy goats i really kind of you know because of the the breeding and the birthing and and all of that I, I kind of consider those above and beyond honeybees i actually consider fairly straightforward um yeah. but those other three are you got to really be in for the long haul
0: <laughs> yeah we struggle with where do we go from here with our livestock we we right now are running chickens and geese and the geese are like little cows and they do a good job of grazing mm-hmm. But we'd like to, you know, we have three acres and we'd like to do more for fertility on this land because God, we need it. Yeah. Um, and we've, we've kicked around the idea of bringing in a, a, a hair sheep called a dorper, which does good in our climate. But when I look at that, I think, you know, maybe if I'm going to do that, I should just get a few ewes and, and just graze them and not really worry about, you know, breeding them for lambs and all. So you start thinking about bringing in a ram and separating them. Right. And it just seems like such a lot of work. And then, as far as goats go, the people that lived at this place before has had goats. And, like, the neighbors tell me, yeah, that lady was up every morning at 4.30 milking them goats. Yep. And I'm like, I don't want to milk no goats. Twice goat. a day,
1: every day. Yeah. <laughs> oh,
0: oh, I don't want nothing to do with you. Know? <laughs> that just sounds like work, and I'm not in this for work. I'm in this for recreation and right. enjoying self-sustaining you know sufficiency yep. so and, and one of my friends pointed out he said well you don't have to milk the goat the, the you can let the goats you know kid and let the the, the, the kids have the goat and uh, the milk and all and i'm like i like goat milk i just don't want to do it
1: yeah well and, and i was raised on goat meat and i'm here to tell you that stuff is fantastic i mean putting out a small herd of meat goats and just kind of turning them loose is a kind of a
0: low input
1: way to, to get I, a benefit.
0: I would, You know, over the sheep, I kind of start leaning that direction. Do yeah. you? I really do, because I would get a lot of the grazing effect, and they're good on the scrub and all that we mm-hmm. have here. Um, a small herd isn't bad, but uh, I don't know. Male goats stink. Oh,
1: they do. They do. You know? <laughs>
0: they stink. Yeah. They like smell a- like a rutting buck all year long. Ugh. You know? Yeah. Uh, when good. I say buck, I mean a buck deer. You know, yeah. they just... So i I don't know um, <laughs> but yeah, you, you know you're right, like if you just did basically basically some females and bought them as as kids mm-hmm. and then raised them and then you know used them as a meat herd, you could avoid a lot of that, i guess
1: yeah and there, you know people are the, the small herds those folks are always looking for a way to make a an extra dollar or two um you know because the margin on on food production is so thin, you know anything you can do to diversify there's a lot of these. Um, these small keepers that are happy for you to bring the does in, and you pay a basically a stud fee, um, and you don't have to deal with the billy goat. You know, you just drop the girls off, pick them up in a you know few weeks or a month or whatever,
0: bring them home, and then you'll have kids in the spring. So it's really I like that. <laughs> well, that's, that's what I thought of with the Dorpers is having you know having them studded out is necessary, but if I do that, it's it's a little more complicated because. Uh, you're dealing with a bit larger of an animal, and the whole point of a Dorper is, unlike most sheep, they breed year-round. Oh wow! So, and they take about, they can be bred about every eight months. So, if you had three ewes, you could be staging their breeding out and and constantly bringing in, you know, a lamb every several months.
1: Yep, yep.
0: And, and that sounds appealing, but it also sounds like a lot of trips back and forth. Or dealing with a ram and having to have because you know if you let him run wild it's going to be too much for them. And oh yeah. I just, so I I just I vacillate there. I digress though. Um, because we're not here about my issues. <laughs> we're here about urban farming, uh, which is what you're the expert in. So, um, would you say that there's maybe one thing every backyard farmer should know or need to think about? One key thing?
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess. Um I guess the point that I would really hammer home is, is that system placement to really give critical thought to where things are on your system. If you put them in the wrong place, you end up creating more work for yourself and you end up requiring more system inputs. You know, back to that example with the chickens, because I can integrate them into my gardens, uh, the Colorado soil, just for the record, is notoriously low in two things, organic matter and nitrogen, chronically low in both of those. And, the, you know, a chicken, a hen puts off about a pound a year of nitrogen rich fertilizer. So if I can integrate those girls into my garden beds, I'm not having to go out and buy nitrogen sources or bring in manure or compost or those things to keep my soil in good
0: growing shape.
1: So system placement is is so critical um, if you want to save yourself time, money, energy, those kinds of things.
0: I'd add on the chickens, like one of the things, we have really denuded soil here. This is this is pretty bad, and we have shallow soils and a lot of rock. And one of the ways that we've been accelerating what the birds can do, uh, I have about a one-acre western pasture where the birds pretty much free range, but I can get them to work an area just by making it attractive. So we'll take an area of maybe 20 by 60 feet, and we'll throw down four or five cups of barley. Yep. Uh, Spread out in there. And then we'll take and we'll get bags of leaves, and we'll put like four-inch deep leaf litter, and then maybe throw a bale of straw on top of that. And then their supplemental feeders, you ain't getting at the the Coop Girls. It's out there, right? And their water goes out there, and they'll spend 50% of their day in that area, and they're not just pooping. They're working and shredding all that stuff up. And to to me, it's like the only way we can do this, because I can't, you know, on an acre, I can't bring in, you know, 50 dump trucks of topsoil and and coat it with four inches. It would be cost prohibitive. So I think that can be adapted on small scale in backyards. And I just saw one of Jeff Lawton's newest little videos he let out where there's this compost facility in New Hampshire. And this guy's doing a very large flock of egg birds on no grain. And all he's really doing is they bring in all this organic matter to compost, and the chickens process that to a certain level, at which time they remove it to finish away from the birds and bring in new stuff. And he's working on a method to basically create a mobile chicken tractor that emulates this, that improves the soil as it goes. Love it. And that just sounds so awesome to me, and I'm like, well, I need about 50 of those. (laughs) and I got to start figuring out what to do with all these dad gone eggs. Yeah. Cause I've got, I've got 12, 12, hens and I get between nine and 13 eggs a day. Every once in a while, one seems to lay two eggs in a day. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, I, I, I don't know what to do with that many eggs. We eat a lot of eggs. I got them coming out my butt. The dogs are eating them. The neighbors <laughs> are eating them. And I'm just thinking to really run this right. I need a much larger flock. Um, uh, multiple flocks really managed independently. But, uh, I think that the chicken, if you can do it, especially in a backyard, is one of the biggest assets you could ever have.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. They, I consider them indispensable. Are, it, it's the You need a vegetable garden and a couple of chickens if you're going to call yourself a backyard farm. That's sort of base minimum. <laughs> um,
0: and one of the things this guy with the um, egg operation was saying is they're actually looking to do bigger and bigger birds now because they're not so concerned with the cost productivity quotient from feed because they're they're not feeding. Oh right. So that the the ideal bird becomes a different bird.
1: Right, other than the scrawny little leghorns?
0: Yeah, like I've got this thing called a uh, a tetra tint. Wow. It's a cross between a Rhode Island red rooster and a white leghorn pullet. That bird is tiny and I feel bad for her cuz she lays the biggest damn white <laughs> eggs. And you'll hear her in there sometimes, rah, rah. like, oh, my God. But, you know, I was looking at that from a production standpoint. I'm going, this bird doesn't eat anything. She doesn't drink much water. She's fast as hell, so nothing can catch yeah. her. Uh, the rooster's not real happy about how hard it is to catch her. And, um, and, and she produces these big eggs. But when I look at it from my fertility goals, that little bird doesn't do a lot. But some of these bigger heavy body birds like Orpingtons and Jersey Giants, you know, or I've got these Freedom Ranger meat birds and out of my uh, meat bird run this year, two of them ended up, they were all straight run cockerels. I ended up with two hens and we just stuck them in with the egg layers. Those things have feet on them the size of a dog. Holy smokes. And, and when they freaking scratch, it's like sods coming up. <laughs> and I, I think the backyard producers, like, three or four chickens are not that expensive to feed, especially if you start bringing in grocery store scraps and stuff like that, might want to think about bigger breeds than we typically think about.
1: Well, and in Colorado, because of our weather, um, pretty much that's all we run with are the, the heritage breeds, the the larger body breeds, as long as they've got like a rose comb or or a pea comb. I, I have kept, um, a single Leghorn, and she was a great layer, um, and she got frostbite on her comb. I mean, we yeah those little birds with those great big combs, they just do not do well here. I mean, and, like the meat birds, we can't even bring them to this elevation. They they die of cardiac arrest at about six weeks or so. So we we're limited. Um, we we can't use the specialized birds here. We can't use the light body layers. They can't stay warm, and we can't use yeah. the heavy body meat producers because their heart and lungs can't take the the elevation. So. It's a little yeah, – it's different I, I everywhere.
0: Th- I think you might be able to use a bird that they use in the northeast for meat, but you can only get cockerels, and it's a bird called a kosher king that are, are, are raised by the Amish, and they don't let any pullets out. Oh. Uh, they're they're egg producers, but the, the the roosters grow fast and large, and they're strong birds. Okay. They're a bird that – um, When a guy came to a, a permaculture thing that I went to with Ben Falk, and he was running, a, I think, 60 of those that year, this guy butchers chickens every day of his life, and he had said, I, I've never seen birds this healthy on the inside of my life. Seriously? Yeah, these things were, in like, the hearts in them were just, like, he's like, whenever you have a meat bird that's been grown fast, like the pericardium's always full of fluid, and always, yeah. he's like, this is just, the liver's beautiful, the heart's beautiful, and these birds were tough, and, they, you know, Vermont gets pretty on cold, yeah. higher elevations, and I wonder how these Freedom Rangers would do as a as a meat bird. It uh, sounds like they
1: would do well, honestly, if if they have good heart and lungs. Because it's not the it's not the size so much. Like the the Cornish Rock, which is your you know your classic meat bird, is yeah. a no go. But there's another one that's similar called a slow rock that grows yeah. more slowly. We can use those here. So this sounds the bird right. you're describing sounds like a slow rock, honestly.
0: Yeah, like the, the kosher kings, I think would work. And I think these Freedom Rangers are these kind of red broiler birds that were bred in France. Uh, they're crossed between four breeds. I don't know which four, but I mean, I've done Cornish before, and by the time they're ready to slaughter, they're looking at you like, please, please kill me. Yeah, right? I, I, I don't, these birds, I've got six roosters still out there that we just wanted to see how big they would get. That if Sunday's nice, they're dead because now they're just eating food. But the two hens, they're laying eggs. Holy smokes! They're, they're, they're integrated. It took them like three weeks to, like, integrate with the flock. We stuck them in there at night. Yeah. You know, they, they, you know, introducing them, yep. they just wake up next to each other, oh, I forgot about you or right. whatever. <laughs> they've taken a while, but they're bigger than our Rhode Islands. They're bigger than um, our, uh, our Sex Link Pullets. Wow. Uh, and they're only about, I'd say, 16 weeks, and they've, I've started to notice different, you know, eggs I've never seen before in the in the nesting boxes that have to be from and them. they're coming
1: from those girls. Wow. Yeah. Great birds. Yeah. Well, you know, you said something that kind of I, I want to um, jump back to if we can. um and I'll I'll start with a an example from um, another urban farm. There's a there's an urban farm in California that um, has high density and has um, amazing claims on the amount the pounds of food that they're able to produce. And they include in that the um, the calories from the milk and the cheese from their miniature dairy goats. Point in fact, the goats are actually um, grazed in the public parks in that city. And it, it's still looked at as a, as a sustainable model. And I want to poke a couple of holes in that. Um, when you're talking urban and suburban agriculture, it's sustainable if the whole city can do it. So if, let's say, 10% of Colorado Springs wants to keep backyard goats and they want to graze them in the public parks, that's 50,000 households trying to graze at least two goats. You have to keep them in pairs. So that's 100,000 goats. Impacting the city parks, it's not sustainable. You, you, you can't no. do that. You can't support that. So some of the models that we're hearing about as sustainable and they're fabulous, they're amazing. They don't work when you scale them up. There's not enough refuse. There's not enough garbage. There's not enough recycled material to to scale up to that size. So um, I love these models and I want people to engage them more and more. And I also want to sort of just put a little bit of word of caution out there that you know look beyond what one small entity is able to accomplish push that out to bigger numbers and if it holds there if it holds as a sustainable model at those numbers then that's definitely a direction that that we should look at at going
0: sure i mean that makes that makes a lot of sense to me and i think there is these hyper productive systems that you know a few people here and there do are great motivators but i think they also can have a very detrimental effect if people don't realize that one, they're showing you the best of what they have and not their failures. They're, 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 they're bragging on themselves a little bit. Two, you're not seeing the years that went into figuring that out. Uh, and three, it's, it's not really reasonable that everybody would have those results. And some of the people that have those results, that's basically their full-time occupation. Right. So I think that, you know, the, 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 the couple, that decides, hey, we're going to emulate this, and they have a full-time job and two kids and soccer games and in-laws to appease and and dogs to walk and you know great homework to work on, and they go out and they have what you and I would look at and go, that's a great first year. Feel that they haven't done enough or feel that they they failed and and don't understand the learning curve and that they'll probably never. Ever produce in volume the way somebody that is a full time spin farmer does.
1: Jack, that's really well said. That's very well said. This, this idea that, um, you know, the, the imaginary notion that, that folks in the urban core are going to produce 100% of the food that they need, it's, that won't happen. You know, we're shooting for 70%. That's our best number. Um, and when folks measure against that ultimate standard, you always come up short.
0: Well, and who wants to only get food from your backyard, really, when you think about it? Unless you live in the tropics where you can grow the variety, because I like this stuff called chocolate. <laughs> I ain't figured out how to grow cocoa, and, and, and I like coffee, and I'll, I'll actually probably skin that one eventually. I've got some ways I think I can grow some coffee, but I probably won't grow enough coffee for our full needs. Right. Um, I I like this stuff not in abundance, but occasionally if I'm going to use something uh, to sweeten, I'd rather use actual sugar rather than fructose corn syrup, and there ain't a lot of sugar cane plantations in North Texas, so I think that trying to do 100% is counterintuitive anyway, because there's a whole reason that we have these trade agreements set up with other people, and that... You know, it's it's great that we can buy California oranges in Texas. That's, mm-hmm. that's great. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's that we're buying California lettuce. Oh, there you go. That, I think, is, see, that's where I think the problem is. It's not that we buy stuff from Florida or lobsters from Maine. It's that, you know, we might buy spinach from Florida. Yeah. When we have one of the best spinach-growing regions in the world right here. I think that's where things are off kilter.
1: I like that. That sounds that sounds reasonable. I mean, I'm a I'm an olive oil freak, um, and I have no it, chance of producing <laughs> olive oil in Colorado.
0: I'm gonna grow some olives. I'm gonna get that done. I've got solar traps ideas, and but I still I'm not gonna produce enough to make large amounts of olive oil. And you know the Italians and and the Spanish do a really good job at that. Let them do that and, and there's things like you know, they're never gonna produce the type of cattle we can down here in Texas. Correct. They just don't. Yeah. And and that's see I think that's that's the broader view. It's define for yourself what you can do reasonably with what you have and do that. And if it's twenty twenty five percent, it's twenty five percent less to the grocery store. Yep. It's twenty five percent much healthier food. And it also allows you then, and this is what I really try to drive home to people that are getting started with this, if you save 50 bucks, uh, a, a month even, that $50 can go maybe not toward more food, but buying healthier food of the food that you buy.
1: Yeah, precisely. Because, you know, as the price of food has continued to rise, so the quality has continued to decline. And I'm not sure everyone's aware of that, but to be able to protect those food buying dollars so that you can at least maintain the quality, that you were eating you know, five or ten years ago. I think that's critical.
0: I think there is opportunities to make an income with this, too, and I yep. think eggs are one of the biggest. The only reason I'm not selling eggs to three of my neighbors right now is I refuse to take their money. I've been giving them eggs whenever they need some, and they've all offered to pay for them, and I'm just like, you guys are neighbors. I don't need it. I'm not going to do that. But if I was in a position where I could use a few extra bucks – I could increase the size of my flock really, really quickly, and I could make a decent living just selling eggs to neighbors.
1: Yeah, yeah. Our big money makers on on our farm, because we actually run a – we're the first urban farm in the city of Colorado Springs, and we're actually an active CSA. So we sell um, vegetables, eggs, and honey. The, The profit margin on the vegetables is abysmal, but the eggs and the honey are quite lucrative.
0: That's awesome. I'll tell you where you can make money selling lettuce in Colorado Springs. Where's that? The Cheyenne Zoo.
1: Oh, seriously?
0: Well, yeah, you're not going to do it, though. I'm just making a joke here. Oh. We were up there right after the, the the expo. We drove down to Colorado Springs. We went to the Cheyenne Zoo, and they have these giraffes. Yes. And they come up to you, and they're like, you're like up on this thing where they can just get their heads, you're like head height with them. And they, they like do not feed the giraffes anything except their special diet, which is romaine lettuce. And I think we spent... Ten bucks for like five (laughs) romaine lettuce, (laughs) but it was it was it was worth it because it was fun. But my niece lives, uh, I think, in Aurora, and we she was going to take her girls down there, and we're like, bring a head of lettuce (laughs) because this lettuce is less. That's the most expensive lettuce. I've ever and I saw people buying it like crazy.
1: That is funny. They, I so that's used a to niche did,
0: marketing. You need giraffes and then you can sell lettuce for two bucks a leaf.
1: I used to be a docent up
0: at that zoo and um,
1: we used to feed them crackers. They must have changed the, uh, the the snack food for the public. That's funny.
0: Yeah, they. I don't know what they have these things. You know, because you've been there, that have these like these baskets where their main feed is. Yeah. But they have all the public feeding them romaine.
1: How funny. Yeah. Maybe because
0: the soccer mom is less likely to have romaine in her purse than crackers. <laughs> well, she, once she sees like I'm paying a dollar a cracker, hold on Johnny here. <laughs> but it's a, it's a cool area that yeah. you're in. I, I didn't realize that's where you were. I, yeah. I just knew you were in Colorado yeah, I mean, somewhere.
1: That zoo is minutes from the house. Um, we're, and that zoo, that giraffe program is famous again because of our elevation. The, um, the giraffes from that zoo. There's a, a descendant from that herd in every zoo in the world. Um, mm. They're able to breed them because our elevation is the same as the Serengeti.
0: So well, I had no idea about that. That's cool. Yeah,
1: yeah. They're they're quite famous, and we all love them.
0: <laughs> so you you are a farm for profit then?
1: Yes, we are, and and we and we're not a farm for big profit. Um, no, but we are. We run in the black. And um we teach folks how to do that. And I I love spin farming. I think that's a great model. Um I definitely um push that to folks as well. But a, a production farm is very different from a backyard farm. And so if your if your idea is to get into urban production, you need to make that decision sort of early on. Is it for um, yourself and your own food security, and for a little bit of profit, or is it for maximizing profit? Because um, they're designed and structured completely differently. Um, you know, spin farming is a little bit more monoculture. It's definitely high-value crops. You know, we grow zucchini. You would never do that on a spin farm. You know, zucchini's not worth anything. Um, so those models do differ. Um, and and I advocate both. It just depends on what folks want to get into. But yeah, we definitely show folks, you know, how to um, set things up in a way that keeps your work and your money and your
0: input, your energy input low.
1: Um, and if you want to monetize that, you certainly can, and you can sell a little bit
0: from your backyard. You know, I just realized as you were saying that I threw that term out there and I, I don't think I've ever really discussed it on the air. So could you tell some, but, tell folks what the spin farming model is? Because there's people out there going, I, I, what?
1: Sure. Um, so it, spin is an acronym. It's small plot intensive and it's a, it's a model that came out of Canada Um, I think a zone four region Um, and and they brag mightily that if you can do it in Canada in a zone four, you can do it anywhere. And I I will add to that um, there's there's your zone, there's your aridity and there's your elevation and those three things sort of work in concert. So um, a place like Colorado Springs, which is a thousand feet higher than even Denver is, um, we have sort of all three of those things working against us. Um, I know where you're at, you've got um, the aridity, which is, you know, working heavily against you. So, you know, the zone, aridity, and elevation sort of all need to be considered together. But the, uh, the spin farming model was based on a zone four, I think, at sea level. Um, and the guy that came up with this, and it's really a business plan, but it's this idea of um, turning your backyard in sort of a wall-to-wall farm, row cropping, you know, very traditional straight row crops. Um, and then knocking on your neighbor's doors and saying, hey, I want to expand my production into your backyard. I'd like to lease your backyard and, and lease your water and I'll give you, you know, half the produce or I'll give you X percent of the sales or whatever. And you set up these lease agreements with all of these individual landholders in your area. And so you're not investing in land. There's very little overhead. Um, the uh the spin farmers, the organization that that sends out the material, I think their business plan is like eighty bucks or something. They're they're not in it for the money, they're just trying to spread the model. Um, they claimed twenty thousand dollars your first year ish, um, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars a year after that, um, if you're a savvy business person and you don't get skunked by the weather, you know, those types of things. Um, we've seen similar uh, models, not quite spin farming, but very close, where you know you can put up a five hundred dollar greenhouse in Colorado and you can make fifteen maybe two thousand fifteen hundred maybe two thousand dollars in your first year, so one greenhouse gets a four times return on its investment, so it 's that kind of idea
0: yeah, and that makes a lot of sense, and I think that I think you 'll see more and more stuff like that i think I think it actually starts to get more exciting if people start to think about how to do that from a permaculture urban food forest stand where you're not having to continuously provide labor inputs at the level uh, that you do for annual vegetables. Mm -hmm. And you're in a little bit more of a, a, a more niche market with some of the things you can grow and a little bit more storability. One of the big dollar crops I've seen come out of urban farming is things like lettuces and spinach and spring mixes and things. And that's great if you have some boutique restaurants you can constantly be, you know, you know they're good for five pounds a day or right. whatever. But if you don't get that stuff sold when it's available, it, it, it goes off really, really yep. fast. Yep. Where things like apples and, and pears and all have a much more extended shelf life. Yep. Or things like your honey. Yep. Honey they found honey and things in the uh, pyramids that was still edible. Yeah, I mean that's that's sustainability yeah. to me from a business model.
1: Yeah, and eggs as well. You know, you you collect eggs day of and you keep them at. 40 degrees or whatever. And I don't know if I've ever had an egg go bad. You know, those, those hold forever. Um The greens, not so much, but zucchinis and tomatoes and, you know, even peppers and those types of things, um, they'll hold. And
0: you can get a few weeks. Yeah, definitely. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um Now I, I found out something about eggs I never knew hmm. because when I was a kid, I mean, if an egg was being boiled, I wasn't boiling it and we had chickens and all, but I never really paid attention. Um So, we decided, Josiah, my intern, and I one day, we have all these eggs are going to make some deviled eggs. So we boiled up a bunch of eggs. And they wouldn't peel worth a damn, like half yeah. the white came off with the peelings. Yeah. So he calls his wife and goes, what the heck is going on? And she's like, oh, they're too fresh. Yep. They need to be two to three weeks old before you boil them for them to peel well. I mean,
1: isn't that funny?
0: And I've never had an egg from a store not peel well. Yep,
1: what really that tell and you?
0: <laughs> tells you something about how not fresh those eggs must be. Yeah. But you wouldn't even know that if you didn't use fresh eggs at some point. It it never occurred to me that that was the case. And it says something about their shelf life as well. I mean, um, we think today if the egg is over 40 degrees for more than 15 seconds, it needs to be discarded (laughs) because the Federal Drug and Food Administration says so. And I love what Steve Harris said about that. He goes, what temperature do you think that egg was? when it came out of the chicken's ass.
1: Nice.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And you know when an egg's bad. Yeah. There's no, you crack an egg, it's a bad egg. You know it's a bad egg.
1: (laughs) I have to warn my, my clients, my new clients, when they take out an egg share, that if they intend to make deviled eggs, um, and they they need them to peel nicely. That they actually need to leave them on the counter for a couple of days, and that speeds up the aging process considerably. That like I really? can't remember the ratio, but it's like you know at sixty degrees for twenty four hours, it's like a, a week in the fridge or something like that.
0: Okay. But okay.
1: in any case, I, I do have to warn them because you cannot peel a fresh egg.
0: <laughs> no, it doesn't peel. It's the stupidest. Like you end up with this like very thin white coating yep. around the yolk. Yep. And the egg just is congealed to the shell. <laughs> And, and it's you know it's made us start like labeling our egg cartons when yeah. the eggs were picked so we can set some aside for boiling. Yep. Though my number one way for fresh eggs is cooked in bacon grease. That just oh
1: yeah oh you're a man <laughs> after my own heart. That's how my dad used to cook them when I was a kid.
0: Oops. Over over easy but never flipped. Just flashed with the the bacon grease and
1: oh you yeah, a like, cast iron skillet right?
0: Yeah, yeah. A, oh, absolutely a cast. Yep. That's the only good thing about antique malls other than old newspaper clipsings is you find cast iron. Yeah. You know. A
1: good cast iron.
0: uh, I just found a cast iron bacon press. Oh wow. So So my 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 forced uh march to man hell actually resulted in two big wins. (laughs) So so now now she's like, Well now we'll go again to a different one. Yeah, Yeah. you're in trouble. Uh yeah, all right. (laughs) Anyway, you have a thing called um a backyard farming class, backyard farming one oh one. Um what what would you say when people take that class is the most common thing that people are like totally shocked that they learn in it.
1: Honestly, I think folks, at least in this area, are just so surprised at how much can be done, how much density you can get, and and not have it look like a jungle. You know, we're actually productive, and you can it's worth your time to do this. And they're surprised by the amount of latitude that our cities on the front range give us to do things in our backyards. You know, beehives are legal. um, Goats are legal in Denver. The ordinance for Colorado Springs is um, going to city council tomorrow, actually. We'll see if we get it approved. Um, But there is so much latitude. There is just so much you can do. You know, and, and folks think of agriculture in a rural setting. You know, their mind goes to out in the country, which is ridiculous because agriculture has always been embedded in urban areas up until about 50 or 60 years ago. So I think that's the big surprise is that you can do it um, and you can do it well, and it doesn't look like the Beverly Hillbillies um, unless you want it to, and it can be highly productive, and it's completely legal.
0: That's that that that's great to hear. I mean, I think we're seeing a lot of battles fought and won on the standpoint of legalizing things that you look at and go, why is that not legal in the first place? Yep. You know, like, why is it? When you look at chickens, it's the one that makes no sense at all, because it's completely okay for me to have a giant screaming macaw, right? <laughs> I can't have this quiet little bird. Yeah. You know, that that doesn't, or, you know, well, they poop everywhere. Well, I'll tell you what, if my chickens produce manure the way my 120-pound German shepherd did, I'd have all the fertility I need. I mean, sure they poop, but so do your dogs and cats. Yeah. It's, it's ridiculous, and some of the arguments I've heard. I covered one story recently where this lady actually said that it was insensitive to African Americans to keep chickens. What? And yeah, and I, I mean, I'm like, I think you're the racist lady. I don't even know where she was. Like, it, it rings to mind a time in the past when chickens weren't pets; they were necessary. And um, wow. the mind of some people, it's so divorced from reality at this point yeah. that you just wonder how we got here.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, it has been a, it's been a well-designed path for us. That's, I mean, that's about the best thing I can say about it, and and trying to reacclimate folks to the idea that agriculture absolutely has a place in our urban environments, and that it is a necessary place, you know, especially in a place like the Front Range. You know, there's all this talk about producing local food, we don't have any water. The state's out of water. All the water is allocated. And right now the cities are doing what's called buy and dry, where they buy water rights from farmers on the western slope, and they basically keep them permanently. They put the farmers out of business, and they bring the water to the cities. If that water is used to grow lawns, that's a travesty. It should not be taken from production in the first place. But if it's brought here, God, the least we could do is grow some food with it. you know. And that's historically what we did with water, but... It, it's that's the the trick is to get that back into people's um, way of thinking that agriculture is supposed to be in urban environments.
0: Well, it's, it's a big part of how suburbs were created in the first place. Yes, it is. It, it, I don't think people know this. Like when they, the suburbs are a relatively new invention, right? It was, if you lived in a city in the eighteen hundred early 1800s, you pretty much lived like in like an apartment or something like that, or, uh, what have you. And if you had a house, you had a pretty big spread of land, even, you know, even smaller places where you're talking acres. Right. And then as, as we had this big population explosion and uh, mobilization around two world wars and all, and they started to really expand suburb- su- through suburbs. There went the phone. That's OK. We'll just we'll we'll we we'll roll, roll through it. OK. I'll, I'll just pause until it stops. OK. Great rig. Yeah,
1: I think it's got one more. All right.
0: Yeah, I think that's it. Okay. So, you know, as we started to expand the true suburbs, and they designed them, they had to sell people on the concept of you're not giving so much up by moving here. And the reason they're all designed with these little side yards and front yards and backyards was that a suburban house was designed to be... A little homestead. Mm-hmm. That that was the whole point, point. and everybody gardened, and everybody had a fruit tree in the front and a fruit tree in the back, and and and, and backyard chickens were really common and all. And somewhere along the line, a bunch of uptight pre yuppie yuppies enacted a lot of these laws uh, as, as neighborhoods got bigger because I didn't want my place to be like that. That's with right, running around. And then these things ended up in place, and people forgot they were even there. Mm-hmm. Nobody kept chickens. Nobody did this gardening. And when people like went into this, what I call the modern back to the land, which instead of going out like Swiss Family Robinson or something, people are doing it back to the land in their backyard. All of a sudden, as they started doing these things, people were like, "Oh, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't like that." And people were bitching about it, and then would go find these old laws and then call up code enforcement and demand that it be enforced. Yeah. Yep. And it's just <clears throat> insane. Yep. Yeah,
1: it, it has it has been a, a deviation from. From all things sane. I would have to agree with you on
0: that 100%. And your stuff on water, where you're at, that's critically important. Oh,
1: wa- water is, you know, that's the saying in the Southwest. Food is medicine. Water is life. And, and we're out. You know, the, the whole front range is out. There just isn't anymore. Um, there's actually homes being built down in New Mexico and Arizona right now where, um, they, they sign that there's no water available to the house and that if you buy this house, that there's no obligation for water to be brought to it and you have to truck in your own water. And this is in the cities. This is not you know, out in the country, but we're out. We're out of water in the, in the West.
0: And the, the solutions to this are many. And one is better use of what we do have. But the other is things like water catchment and retention, yep. which in the geniuses in these, these Western states, in many cases, outlaw yep. this. Uh, which doesn't actually make more water for anybody. Not letting somebody catch water off their roof does not result in more water in streams. Right. It results in more water in storm sewers.
1: That's right. Yeah, it, and it's, you know, they, they try to run it back to the rivers. You know, they lose a ton along the way. Um, the amount that they actually get back to the rivers and the amount they actually get to soak into the ground to recharge the aquifers is minimal, um, if at all. If they Not just what it brings good.
0: with it when it gets to the river, what it takes with it along the way, the pollution, yep. the topsoil. Yep. Um, when I flew over Denver on the way out of that airport, it was clear enough to see when I left versus when we flew in, just the washes and gulches. It looks dry as a bone, but you know there's water there at times because you can see yeah. the footprints of it. Yeah, out on and the east. Just look at that, you know, every Landform put in by man in that area is designed to make water go away mm-hmm. in a place where they get ten to twelve inches of, of precipitation a year. That's right, it is maddening.
1: Yeah, yeah. As opposed to sinking it down into the ground and holding it in the soil,
0: it's called a swale, folks. Anyway, <laughs>
1: uh,
0: so you use the word client a couple times. Can you talk about what you do when you work with a client? I know you have like a course, but do you do you work more with like a client, not just as like a, going to a class, but actually consulting with them?
1: You know, I I did. I used to do quite a bit of that. I'm doing um, less of it now um, because the the course is online or it's in person. So if you live here, um, you know, we can interact face-to-face. But I set it up so that I can work with people one-on-one if they're in the course. So working with clients has become um, a less viable avenue because the other system works so much better. I actually just met with a client a week or so ago, Um, and we talked about moving her from a design client to a class client, which actually saved her money. Um, and she was overjoyed because it, it got her a greater depth of information and, um, as much one-on-one as she would have gotten in a, in a client relationship. So I do design work for some folks, but I really try to steer, um, people to the classes. Um, what happens when I do a design is that, and I'm sure you have run into this with, with the permaculture piece, when you're making decisions in your head based on what you know, and then you present it to somebody, it's out of context and they don't understand necessarily what they're looking at. But if you teach them the pieces and sort of support them as they develop that design themselves, they understand all the decisions and there's a great greater level of buy-in. So I, I do work with clients, but I'm sort of moving that other direction, I'm more interested in, in making each person the expert on their own landscape. I don't want to be the expert on their landscape. I want them to be the expert.
0: Well, and it does, especially with permaculture, when you start saying, well, what we're going to do is we're going to put a path in, and that path is going to run from here to there, and then it'll be this one little branch off of it that goes where you want it to go. And they say, well, why? Well, because we're going to put that path on contour. Mm hmm. And, it, well, I. Why? Well, I yep. don't really care if my path's on contour. Well, let me explain to you how it soaks water into your landscape. And it's it's like you're finding it every step of the way where if you just said, Hey, do you know what? If you put this feature in on contour, exactly. it soaks water into the land then they start saying to themselves, like you're saying, Well, where can I do that on my property? Exactly. And then they tell you something stupid like, There's no there's no contour on my problem. <laughs> Yeah, let's work on what a level is and <laughs> explain <laughs> this a little bit better. Um, or, you know, when you start telling them about certain things they can plant that they've never heard of yep. before. Well, I want to grow Red Delicious apples. Well, no, you don't.
1: No, you don't.
0: Yeah, You're not in a climate for it, and it's a boring apple that has chill hours that you don't meet, and you can buy in any grocery store in the world. And you, you, what you want to grow is something like an Oshman's kernel, and they're like, what is that a nut? No, it's an apple <laughs> variety. And yeah, so I think if you can get people learning for themselves, they get more active and they do more. Yep. Absolutely. And I I don't know about you. I I remember what you said your your professional background is, but I was in consulting for a long time. And as a consultant, the most maddening thing in the world is somebody to pay you for consulting and then not do it.
1: Yeah. Yep.
0: You just like, why did you pay me yep. for this? I mean, I had corporate clients who would pay us $50,000 for 30 days worth of consulting, and then do nothing. Oh, wow. And I quit. I mean, I, that's part of why I do what I do now. I'm like, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. And my old business partner's like, why do you care if they do it? They pay. Because
1: well, you're yeah. invested in the work. You emotionally yeah, invested exactly. in the work.
0: Or the worst ones are the ones that do 50% of what you recommend and bitch that they don't get 100% exactly. of the results from.
1: yeah. Well, I, I implemented this piece. Well, it all works together. So. Let's
0: <laughs> see. Yeah, and and with with agriculture, it's even more the case. Yeah. That, well, you put that bed in there, but you didn't do the thing we talked about with irrigation, so it's dry and everything's dead.
1: Exactly. Or you can put the movable <laughs> in below, and you can't hold water in your soil, or yeah, yeah. any number of things. Exactly. Yeah, I, yeah. Actually, I used to work in consulting as well. I was a planning consultant for um, an engineering and urban planning firm, um, and that. Part of that has sort of set me up to to work well with folks, you know, to sort of understand that relationship um, and to understand the landscapes. But it's um, it is sort of a different perspective when you're when you're working with a corporate client or you're working with a personal client. But, um, yeah, it's it's all for good. I guess that's the best way to say it is that it's it's all for the the greater good.
0: So, so, tell us about this uh, farming one oh one class what 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 is that What is that all about? How long does it take somebody to get through it, and what are some of the key things that they learn and take away from it
1: so if um if you live along the front range and you want to take it in person, some folks prefer to um, to do it face to face. I offer the class twice a year at my uh, my office down in South Colorado Springs. If you're not in the area you can take the course online. So if you take it live, it's four Saturdays in a straight run. It takes four weeks. If you take it online, a lesson is emailed to your inbox once a week. And it's a course that you really can't get behind in because if you miss lesson five, you were out of town and you come back and lesson five is in your inbox and then lesson six arrives, just ignore lesson six and then do lesson five and get to six when you get to it. So it's kind of nice for folks that have crazy schedules it covers kind of, uh, you know, the soup to nuts. It, it's heavy on the design piece. Um, we spend a couple of weeks just working on understanding design principles and, and getting your map in good shape. And then every time we cover a unit, like if it's honeybees or if it's goats or if it's aquaponics or if it's vegetable gardens, we go back to the design and we, we talk about, um, specific design considerations for each of those systems. We also talk a lot about budget, you know, um, our aquaponics system, our greenhouse, the greenhouse itself was about $3,000 and the aquaponics system was another 1000 So $4,000 invested in that aquaponics system. That's a lot of lettuce. So if, you know, <laughs> you have to keep an eye on your budget. If you're doing it for, for production, you know, it's truly as a business, that's even more important. If it's an investment for yourself, just to sort of maintain your own food security and your own quality of food, It's not as important, you know, you can make those decisions according to aesthetics, you know, those types of things, Um, but budget is a huge piece. So every unit we go back to design, you know, we revisit that and we also go back to budget and and look at those considerations for a specific system, but it's comprehensive, it's uh, everything you need to know to get started.
0: So it is it is very comprehensive and on budget it's it's affordable it's uh $98 for the full course mm-hmm. but on budget you've actually set up a discount for and this is not for MSB, this is for all survival podcast listeners right could you tell people about that
1: Yeah um I love your podcast and I love your listening audience um great bunch of folks and I wanted to do something just for for your listeners so I I sent you a a link that takes you to a private page And it takes um, 20% off the price of the course. I think it brings it down to $74, perhaps. Um, $77.
0: 77.
1: And that page is not, you can't navigate to it. You can't go to my website and find it. You have to have the link to get to it because it's just set up for you guys.
0: Well, excellent. I'll make sure there's a uh that link is put in our uh, show notes uh for you as well so that people can find it. Sure. And uh you know, I really appreciate you doing that for the audience and I appreciate the work that you're doing. And uh the folks that told me about you at the expo were right. It, you're you're an awesome source of information and a really cool lady. So thanks for being on the show with us today, Christine.
1: Thanks, Jack. I love being here.
0: And folks, with that, this has been Jack Spirico today, along with Christine Faith, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. It's in our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing
1: I can do.